Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Today, we're talking to my very, very good friend, Ankit Gupta, CEO and founder of Bicycle Health, a telehealth treatment program for opioid use disorder. Ankit, it's great to have you on today. Thanks a lot, Michael. So we'd love to start by asking you to give us just a brief introduction to Bicycle Health and to let us know what inspired you to start the company. Bicycle Health provides treatment for opioid use disorder through a virtual care model. Uh, We have helped thousands of people overcome opioid addiction. So when patients have a hard time and and are on opioids, uh, they come to us and we provide a comprehensive care model that includes medication management, psychotherapy, case management, randomized at-home drug testing, and really help patients overcome withdrawal symptoms, overcome cravings, and uh, help achieve uh, health, wellness, independence, you know, things, things that we, we want to be able to do in our, in our day-to-day lives. We deliver this model fully virtually through a in-house full-time multidisciplinary care team of medication management providers, licensed clinical social workers, uh, recovery coaches, and, and, and a large support team. You know, we've been working on this for about six years now and, and have really reached national scale. So we're in 48 states. Uh, we're working with um, several health insurance uh, providers, whether it's uh, commercial insurance, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, we're also working with the Federal Bureau of Prisons and, and several criminal justice organizations and really trying to reach patients where they are, meet them where they are, help them get into treatment as quickly as possible, and, and really provide high quality um, efficacy, efficacious care. Personally, I I think growing up in India, you only have two options. You can either become an engineer or a doctor. Uh, <laughs> so I <laughs> became became an engineer. So this might be my way to to atone for for that and 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 try to be a little bit of both. Um, or a healthcare founder. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, my wife is a doctor, so uh, ah. uh, you know when I got married to her. Um, that's how I started learning more about the kinds of patients she's seeing, the kinds of technology problems that she has with her EHR and other things. And, and she was really the inspiration to, um, learn more about people with addiction, because I think about a third or sometimes even half of her patients had some sort of behavioral health, some sort of addiction challenges. And I was just coming off of my last startup, uh, which was a mobile app to read news on the go. So it was really nothing to do with healthcare. It was purely a technology software product. We we launched the app on the App Store, uh, scaled to millions of downloads worldwide, got acquired by LinkedIn, and and is now uh, really integrated into the LinkedIn you know content ecosystem. So I was I was coming off of that. I wanted to start another company that's a lot more impact oriented, and you know just started talking to lots of people in recovery. Uh, started hearing their journeys, how. They decided to make a change, 
what the journey was to actually find help and 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 really got quite disappointed with with our healthcare system also also with our communities i think uh, uh the amount of stigma is is really high there are so many access challenges and and there's so many policy challenges so all of this um manifests in making it really hard to find providers to to go to nearby really hard to be engaged in care really hard to juggle family and and your own care responsibilities especially when you might have to keep it hidden from your employer or or even from your your primary care doctor and and so i thought technology could really help overcome a lot of these challenges and and really provide something that's confidential that's convenient that is high quality that is affordable really something that you can engage in wherever you are whenever you are it it felt like this is a good stab at at the opioid epidemic which is really only getting worse uh you know during and and after covid so i would say that you know that was my inspiration and and i think i'm still on the <laughs> on the journey to uh yeah to turn out well welcome to healthcare new. we're so happy to have you we need <laughs> as many smart people working in healthcare on these huge problems. And you picked an enormous one uh, that we know impacts millions, tens of millions of Americans and people around the world. I'd love to start diving into the business model because I did a little digging on your site to understand um, how pricing works and um, have a couple questions about it. So I saw that the self-pay price is $1.99 a month. Um, so I'm curious, my first question is I'm curious how, uh, your customer base, uh, breaks down between those who are self-pay versus those with insurance coverage. Um, so I want to talk about that. And then I kind of want to talk about how that works from unit economic standpoint, because that includes all your doctor visits, unlimited (laughs) messaging, care navigation, online therapy. It's a lot. Um, so I'm curious how you afford to provide that much care on $199 a month. Such a great question. Uh, also, that price hasn't changed in the last six years since we started the company. And, and we all know inflation has uh, skyrocketed. I'm a very impatient person. So when we started Bicycle, we wanted to get out there and start helping people as quickly as we can. We didn't want to wait for gatekeepers to uh, give us permission to to doing that. And and so right out the gate, we started with this self-pay model. Um, and in some ways, the price, 199 was fairly arbitrary. <laughs> it was something that we uh, saw other providers in the market. You know, the, most of the providers providing opioid addiction treatment are, are mom and pop, you know, brick and mortar, providers, it's it's typically a doctor who's fairly mission-driven and, and really wants to make a change in their community. And and when we looked around, you know, the price was somewhere in that range. And and so we decided to make that price work uh, and, and, and also make it work in a way that we can provide high-quality care. Uh, I also didn't fully understand value-based care, I think, at that time, and everyone was talking about value-based care. So I thought, hey, having a monthly price is a value-based care model and we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out what our care model is and then start pitching it as a value-based care model to payers. So anyways, it's obviously not how it works. And, and so we set the price 199 a month because 
we felt like that will allow us to create a care model that can be highly efficacious, can provide all the services that, that we want to provide, but at the same time can be somewhat affordable in, in our patient population. And we were off to the races. The amount of care provided in the first month is quite high. So when patients come to us, they uh, typically have a 60-minute initial appointment with a MD, NP, or PA. Um, that first week is quite intense where patients are uh, going through withdrawal. They're starting to taper up on the medication and they're starting to uh, overcome withdrawal and starting to get to a stable medication dose that helps them overcome their cravings. Uh, and so there's quite a bit of care management through chat. There's also several online visits during that first, first week or so. After that, the intensity of care drops down quite a bit, uh, where uh, appointments with the provider are either twice uh, a month or, or sometimes even once a month on an ongoing basis. And initially, when Bicycle launched, our model was highly medication management oriented. Over time, we've made the model a lot more robust with, with therapy and recovery coaching and, and wraparound support services. Um, and so the way we mapped out our unit economics was there's a little bit of CAC upfront where we're investing in really reaching the patient through either online channels or referral channels or other channels where we're running an enrollment coordinator team that's actually helping uh, walk patients through uh, eligibility and, 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 and other things over the phone and, and really making sure the patients are a good fit for our care model versus needing a higher level of care. So there's some upfront costs to, to engage patients. But we also set the price in a way where even the first month or two is, is part of that upfront customer acquisition cost because we really want it to be affordable and we want it to be engaging for patients over the long term uh, because the primary clinical outcome in retention in addiction medicine is retention and treatment. So every, every decision we take in the company is sort of uh, driven from that endpoint to try to optimize and increase retention and treatment. Um, and, and, you know, that reflects in our unit economics as well, where uh, the first month or two for, for a self-pay patient is, is typically where we lose money, but then we start making money over the long term. And then since our retention is so high over a four year period, we're able to have really strong LTV and we're able to pay back the customer acquisition cost early on and, and, and really be aligned with both what the patient outcome is as well as what the what the company's outcome is. Since then, we've obviously contracted with health plans at a, in a in a pretty large way. So we now have uh, you know uh, several national contracts. We have over 100 million covered lives under contract, and now majority of our patient base is actually uh, billable, and and we're actually you know billing their insurance, and that again allows us to. Uh, in some ways, cross-subsidize the self-pay patient population um, because, again, we're we're a very mission-driven organization. We we want to do what's best for our patients, and and we know the more insurance we take, the harder it actually becomes for the people whose insurance we don't accept to be able to pay us for for care. Um, and and so that's again been a driver for us to keep the self-pay price where where it is, and and in some ways suffer worse unit economics so that we're able to 
um, have have much better unit economics on the sort of insurance and criminal justice lines of business. Ankit, are you seeing different retention rates between the self-pay population and the insured population group? Would would love to yeah, hear very, a little more because I, I speculated as much, but would love to love to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, they're they're so different. Um, the biggest reason, so after after just patients being lost to care because a relapse happened or or other other factors happened. After that, the biggest reasons patients leave care is because of financial burden. And that was, again, a huge driver for why we wanted to contract with any and every insurance company out there that is able to reimburse us appropriately for, for our quality of care. And why we've invested in really scaling, scaling that so significantly where we now have over 100 million covered lives. But that shows in our retention numbers. So the retention for a self-pay patient at the one-year mark I think right now is somewhere in the like 30 to 40%. But the retention for a insured patient, someone whose insurance we accept at the one year mark is actually between 50 and 60%. So there's almost a two, two times multiple in, in retention. What's even harder to, to look at actually is that the retention for a self-pay patient drops down month over month. So that financial burden, which you have to pay every month continues to be a burden. Even, even as people are feeling better and starting to get their lives back together and starting to um, engage better. And so the retention keeps dropping. Whereas the retention for a uh, billable patient whose insurance we accept is actually fairly flat. And even at the four year mark, our retention is 45% wow. for that line of business. Wow. And, and that's exactly what you would expect from addiction medicine, where you're you're really engaging the patient in care and, and you're helping patients uh, longitudinally over over the course of their life. Um, and and forty five percent, by the way, is probably one of the best retention numbers that that we've seen in research. and 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 those have been reported in in less than a year timeframes. So so the fact that uh, we we know no data out there, that's able to record retention uh, so so far out, uh, you know, years years out, and, and and so there's really no benchmark, and we we believe that you know we're seeing one of the best retention outcomes that, that exists in addiction medicine. Okay, so I want to I want to play devil's advocate for a second and talk yeah. about aligning the incentives with outcomes because you're charging per month means that you make more money the longer someone is is in a recovery plan, and you make less money if someone overcomes substance use disorder and is able to quote unquote graduate. Um, talk about how you kind of reconcile that in your heart. <laughs> this is exactly the reason why I picked opioid addiction as the disease that, that I wanted to work on. The main clinical outcome in addiction medicine is retention in treatment. That is the primary outcome. If you look at comparing care models, if you look at care model innovation, if you look at comparing practices, the primary indicator is retention and treatment. And then there's obviously other secondary indicators like mental health outcomes and, and uh, uh, functional outcomes and, and, and things like that. Now, we're not hoping retention to be 100%, but we also don't want retention to be as low as it has been in addiction medicine so far, which is, you know, 12, 
12 month retentions have been close to five to 10% uh, in, in sort of general, you know, yeah. uh, opioid treatment programs and, and things like that. Um, there is no specific guidance on when patients should be off of treatment. How long should treatment mm. exist? These yeah. longitudinal studies haven't even happened. And, yeah. and I think we're actually in a really good place with the yeah. large data we have in the patient population and the fact that we're tracking patients longitudinally. We could actually produce this outcome because, again, ethical practice of medicine is you are helping patients achieve their goals. Um, yeah. And so we have a fairly structured approach. We train all of our providers in motivational interviewing. We help assess goals for our patients and then we help patients uh, reach their goals Sometimes the goal is to get off of medications completely, but often the goal is not that <laughs> often the goal is other psychosocial factors like reconnecting yeah. with friends and family, social supports, uh, getting children back from child protective services, you know, uh, moving back in with your partner, getting a job. So if patients have the goal of tapering off of the medication and, and being off of the program, that's something that we help with. Um, and, and that's factored into our, our retention. But for the most part, as long as we believe our care model is helping people achieve their goals, having high retention, especially yes. as it compares yeah. across the industry, is, is actually a really good indicator for, for quality yeah. of care. So it's, uh, so what I'm hearing from you is that actually this in this space, in this sector of healthcare, it is we think about substance use as chronic and the opposite of treatment and retention. The opposite isn't actually full recovery. The opposite is they've gotten to a place where they're not being treated and they're probably uh, not well. Got it. Exactly. And part of this is also relapse prevention. So even if a patient is fully off of medications, there's still psychosocial supports that are needed typically to help with relapse preventions. Our care model still doesn't, has we've still not built those capabilities out that can help patients longitudinally after they're finished with, with medication management. But that is our ambition. To, to get to. So to be able to provide all of those services in the care journey once they've reached that, that inflection point, Ankit, in their, in their recovery. Exactly. And, and my hope for the pharmaceutical industry is to actually build better and better medications. Why do patients need to be on medications for, for such a long time? And I'm seeing really promising evidence in, 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 uh, some of the psychedelic medications to to be able to address this condition, um, you know, much more effectively than than buprenorphine is even. So, Anka, do you view that four year? I know you mentioned you have longitudinal data on these four year retention rates. Is that is there some magic to four years? Or I know the company's been around for six years. So, what what's the magic to four years? Or is there any magic to that number? No, there's none. I mean, that's just where our statistically significant cohorts end right now <laughs> got it, since got it. we were small early on. Uh, but yeah, we, we expect to work with patients throughout, throughout, sometimes throughout the rest of their, their lives. Life. Yeah. I mean, but if, so if you're a self-pay patient, though, it makes sense that your retention is lower because that's $2,400 a year. And if you're it's, someone who's, you know, working a minimum wage job, that's, you know, living in the United States, that's a, a an insane amount. It is. Um, and, uh, but the flip side to that is often what we hear from people who have had been on opiates for a long time is it's, it costs them somewhere between a thousand yeah. to 5,000 a year to, to have that 
also. And so I think there is something to the having. Drugs. You're saying the drugs. That's that was what spent on the drugs. The, the drugs, the the lifestyle, yeah. you know, yeah. um, all of it. And and so it's hard to sustain on two hundred dollars a year for a long time. And that's why we really need our Medicaid systems, frankly, to to really step up and create the payment models needed to provide high quality care. But in lack of that, we believe we're at least able to help patients out early on to get off of opioids, get into treatment, get stabilized, get some recovery supports. And even if they fall off the program at Bicycle, they still have that progress that they've made that they can take to um, sort of continuing that in their, in their life. It's it's so real, Hallie, uh, sh- you know, sharing the context of twenty four hundred dollars a year. Uh, but when you think about the downstream social effects and the downstream costs of not having this type of support, it, it, it's really a failing of the social safety net. Right. Where we're just once again unwilling to spend a little more upfront to save a lot in terms of impact downstream. And it's just a travesty. Uh, so, so I do hope, I do hope, uh, Ankit with, with, as bicycle grows and, and the impact and influence is seen that, you know, we can come up with solutions to make it a long-term solution, uh, for, for people who are self-pay in particular. One, one direction I wanted to take us on, you, you mentioned, you touched on this very briefly about patients' families and, uh, you know, are the families involved, you know, how, how, how do they factor into the, the virtual care model? Yeah, it's a really good question, Michael. I, I'm not sure we've fully figured out how to help families get involved effectively. Um, Family involvement can be both a blessing and a curse in, in addiction treatment. Uh, like everything it, in life. amen to that (laughs) Uh, yeah it becomes challenging and uh, there needs to be a really strong um, relationship with the family between the patient and the family and often that relationship is the one that suffers during during addiction and so we actually try to work directly with the patient as much as we can. We, we don't even let patients enroll in our care if they don't call us directly. Uh, and, and a lot of the consents are, are directly uh, done, executed with, with the patient. Families do help cover the cost of treatment sometimes, but often we've seen that become complicated too, where they might not want to cover the cost for too long. And then now the patient has to leave care because they don't have someone covering their cost and, and it just complicates things quite a bit. So unfortunately we haven't found a good way to um, really, really have families be, be involved in care. On that note, I'd love to just hear a little bit about user acquisition uh, since this is something that is a, a perhaps a difficult market to reach. How yeah. are you reaching these people and convincing them that now is the time to, to make this, massive life change. You know, this might be one of the most counterintuitive things for me in this journey. We reach patients through online channels. Like social uh, media. Yes, social Ads. media to yeah. some extent, Google search. So we've, we've invested quite a lot in writing content online. So when people I've... are... <laughs> <laughs> you, I actually was Googling how blogs. long someone needs to be on treatment for, and it was a bicycle health article that showed up. So there you go. bravo to your content team. <laughs> Thanks. I'll pass that along. Yeah. They, they're, yeah. Uh, 
really good at understanding yeah. what patients need. We have a whole system internally. We we learn from That's our great. patients and really sort of yeah write content for different things that are happening in in their life. Helps us in our care journey, but also really helps us reach patients. Uh, yeah. When you have addiction, so there's data on this. Ninety percent of people with substance use disorder don't want help. They don't want treatment. People cite that as as a negative, where you know if ninety percent don't want help, then you can only help ten percent of the people. I don't think of it that way. I think of it as at any point in time, ten percent of the people want help because it changes, right? And and when people are ready for help, often that's when they are in withdrawal themselves, or or there's some upcoming life event that's happening. They're starting a new job. They just got kicked out of their home. Something massive happened. That's when we have to be really ready to engage them in care because that window is really short. Uh, we might only have a few hours to actually help engage them in care. And then, and then that motivation will be lost. And so that's where I feel like online engagement is, is really one of the best ways we can, we can engage patients because they're already searching for how to overcome withdrawal symptoms or, you know, when can I start or will my company... They have the intent. They have the high exactly. intent at that point. They're not going to see an ad on Instagram and be like inspired, like now's the day I'm going to change my life. They have to come to you with that intent already. Yeah. I mean, we've had that too. So we do advertise on both oh. Google <laughs> with okay. intent and, 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 and Meta and, and we found different approaches work in, in different platforms. Often the, the thing we find with Meta and Instagram is people are up at night at 2am. They're having a hard time, but they're on social media doing the stuff all of us do on social media and, and looking at photos and bicycle pops up and they might have heard of Suboxone. They might have heard of opioid uh, MAT treatment, but it just happened to be the right time that they, that they decided to engage and they schedule a call with our enrollment coordinator that morning. And they get seen that morning when their withdrawal started to get worse and worse. And, and, and now they're off to the races and, and, and really turning their life around. So um, it, it's just trying to be where patients are at. And uh, uh, the, the, the other thing that I've learned, which is why online acquisition is so effective, is uh, both there's a high intent because, because the patient is going through a hard time. Also, there's a lot of need for confidentiality. So our patients are not in typical uh, channels that, that healthcare uses to, to reach patients. Our patients are not necessarily, so mo most of our contracts are commercial, commercial contracts. Often our patients are employed or, or at least are, are uh, a dependent of someone, someone who is employed. And so they're not necessarily going to emergency rooms and, and discharging from emergency rooms or, or not, you know, getting, going to a drug court and getting mandated treatment or, or, or being identified in the, in the community, half of our patients have a primary care doctor. So half of them don't. And even those who do only about half are comfortable sharing this information with their primary care doctor. Uh, so they're not raising their hands at a primary care doctor asking for a referral or going to their payer portal. Our payers don't even have an addiction medicine category in their provider portal often. Uh, and, and so our patients are not going there. So they're not in the usual referral channels. And so again, and, and the need for confidentiality is so high, they're not asking their employer for a referral. So being able to reach patients online in a highly intentful way, in a way that they're already there, but more importantly, building our 
operations in a way that the wait times can be really short for an appointment. And, and doing that at national scale with lots of states, lots of payers, lots of regulations, and running an efficient medical group where the fill rates on those appointments need to be really high. And so balancing high fill rates with short wait times it is a really hard problem to solve. And I'm actually really proud of our, our team and our data and our analytics and our marketing to have and our operations to have solved that problem, at least in, in, a, in a way where we're able to reach patients quite effectively online. I mean, you're targeting the user population that uh, that's optimal for this virtual care model, it sounds like. So, so curious, what does the cohort data show then, Ankit? Is it, uh, you know, by, by, uh, age and, and, and gender and, and other socioeconomic factors? Just curious because, you know, when, when we think about social media, um, outreach, I mean, my, my, my grandparents, my parents, not necessarily the, the right user audience. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure my dad knows what Instagram is. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it'd be curious. You hey, know. I'm not on Instagram too. So I can <laughs> empathize with, with your dad. Yeah. So we'd, we'd, we'd love to hear a little bit about what, what the uh, user cohort data looks like in terms of those factors. Yeah. Our patients tend to generally be younger. So, uh, you know, in the 30 to 40 age range. Uh, opioid addiction is a condition that Im- impacts patients who are younger a lot more. Um, our patients, we do, we, we have a pretty even gender balance. We have a pretty sort of representative, you know, balance in terms of urban and rural, but our, our patients do tend to be more technologically savvy. They're able to download the app. They're able to get set up. You know, we've trained our enrollment team internally to really stay with the patient throughout the process of enrolling with us. So that means some of those calls can be like hours long where they're literally with the patient. Think of it as being in person, except you're on the phone. They're literally with the patient. Hey, I've sent you a text message with the link to fill out the intake paperwork. As the patient is filling out the intake paperwork, they can actually see where the patient is so they can help them. Hey, do you need help locating where your pharmacy is? I can do a Google search or do you need help understanding, you know, finding what the phone number is for your primary care provider so that you can sign a consent form? So all of that, uh, upfront paperwork, the, 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 the enrollment coordinator is really being on the phone and helping the patient through that, downloading the app, figuring out any sort of setup issues. Uh, and so we really try to handhold the patient through, throughout that journey. Uh, and then we also have tech support built in to, to help the patients on an, on an ongoing basis. So that helps us, um, try to be more, more inclusive. And, you know, we have a small but growing Medicare patient population and, and our Medicare patient population is actually one of the highest retentive populations, uh, across other payers. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard for someone who, might not be online, might not be technologically savvy to, to really engage in care. And, and those are some of the factors where we have to refer patients to higher levels of care. So part of our level of care assessment does bake in whether a telehealth model is, is suitable for, for the patient. Or not. And do you have places to refer them if it's not? Yeah. In every state, we build those partnerships. Uh, often it's local brick and mortar providers like office-based addiction treatment providers. If it's you know, uh, a higher level of care in, in terms of medical necessity, we, we refer patients to inpatient providers as well. Yeah. Do you want to talk about 
fundraising. So you guys are um, a Series A company or Series B company. Yeah, Series B. Um, great. Tell us about um, kind of the funding that you've received to date and where you're going from here. Yeah, we've raised about 80 million so far. It's definitely a model where we have to invest a lot upfront. And we are close to profitability, uh, but we're, we're not there yet. But also, you know, given how strong the retention is and, and how massive the, the, the problem is, uh, you know, I'm really excited for us to be able to sort of build a really strong brand and, and a really strong platform that, uh, that, you know, sustains over the long run and, and, and the amount of investment really provides a strong ROI, both, both in terms of financial and the social impact that, that it can create. So yeah, we've, we've raised 80 million. Um, we are right now talking to investors for our next round, which will be probably in the sort of 20 to 30 million to 40 million range. Um, that should likely be the last round before we get to profitability and, and likely, uh, you know, it's just something that we're looking to continue um, building out our partnerships, building, reaching more patients and, and building out our care model and, and, and technology. And really, I think, you know, doubling down on the leadership that we have established in, in, in the space and, 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 you know, continuing to invest in those modes. Well, with 100 million covered lives already, Ankit, I mean, I got to imagine you're going to need to scale the team further. And, and so, so how big is the team today? And uh, where do you envision it, you know, getting to in, in the next couple of years? We have about 250 people in the company, uh, fully remote, so it doesn't feel that big, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's much larger than I thought it would be when I started the, the company. Most of the team is care delivery uh, team members, so uh, it's either clinical or, or, or non-clinical staff that is that is involved in care delivery. So I would say our our sort of non-care delivery administrative team is is still fairly small, um, and we've tried to be very intentional about how we grow the company, and really tried to also be very intentional about how we uh, help our team members grow in their careers. So, so how do we coach people? How do we set the right operational systems to, to bring, bring people along and really try to grow people and stretch people into, into roles. And so, so far that has worked well for us. So, you know, I expect us to continue growing, but maybe not as rapidly as, as, uh, as some of our peers, because we're uh, again trying to be very mindful of efficiency uh, and and burn, but yeah, I think the company will grow by two x maybe over the next couple of years. Uh, but again, mostly on the care delivery side. And those folks on the care and clinical teams, those are employees of the company. They are, yeah. So we are uh, a little bit unique in that sense, I guess. We run a large medical group, and and all of our care delivery team members are full time W two employed. Music to my ears. (laughs) I I, I, I already knew the answer to that question, uh, but uh, but I I thought our listeners should uh, should hear. So uh, it's it's different, you know. I think there are religious debates. There's there's pretty passionate discussion on on both sides, but um, yeah. 
we like. But Michael wine. has very strong opinions on one <laughs> that we all know now. For any repeat listeners, you know. Um, well, Ankit, this is so exciting to hear what you're working on. And the, again, such an important space really needs some big, bold solutions. So really excited to hear about everything that you've done. If folks want to follow along, want a job at Bicycle Health, <laughs> want to, uh, you know, sh share, recommend your program to someone they know, a loved one who's facing opioid use disorder, what is the best way for them to follow up with you and the team? We couldn't do this without the support of everyone who's, who's uh, uh, passionate about this mission. You can go to bicyclehealth.com to learn more. Uh, we have a careers page uh, to look at what, what open roles we have. We post a lot on LinkedIn. So follow us, connect with us, connect with me, and you'll be able to get all of those updates. We do a ton of advocacy work as well. So if you're interested in being a champion for people in recovery, uh, you can go to oudhelp.com. We, we power that website and you can sign up for the mailing list and we try to really push for uh, policy wins for, for people with addiction. And probably the biggest thing that I think your listeners can do is, is really be open and vulnerable about their own journeys. You know, if you're struggling with, with addiction or if you, if you want to empathize with someone who is, you know, taking the step to, to doing that and, and really being open and curious and, and vulnerable because, because I think the, the more stigma we can bring down and the more openness we can, we can create. Us all. Yeah. Here, here. Absolutely. Yeah. Across everything in healthcare, <laughs> there's stigma around almost, you know, at having cancer, having infertility, having addiction issues. I mean, uh, yeah. So I agree with that. Well, thank you. So thanks again, Ankit. Really appreciate you joining us and sharing this inspirational story. And uh, we, we look forward to continuing to watch uh, as Bicycle, Bicycle Health continues on its journey. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Teco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 